Welcome back to Into Greatness. I'm Jason here with Jolene. She's the expert. I'm not, but we all know a little bit about mental health. So we can help you out with that as best we can here and hopefully uh, provide some good knowledge, a few laughs and some insight or two. This week, we're touching on childhood trauma, which is something I think a lot of people don't want to think about <laughs> because it it's our everything that happens to us as kids affects the rest of our lives. And it's interesting being a parent now and seeing the things that have impacted my son and how it's sort of played out in his, you know, almost 11 years. It's made me look back at my childhood and things that happened to me and how they've affected me even to this day, Jolene. And I know you've had yours as we all have, but you, from your like counseling therapist perspective, how big, like, shut, yeah, talk, I, what do you, can you say about this? <laughs> people will ask me, they're like, well, how far back you want me to go? I'm like to the womb, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the womb. There is always like a place where our life, um, store starts a file. It starts a file on abandonment. It starts a file on, I'm not good enough. It starts a file on, um, rejection. It starts a file on fearful responses, attachments, all of these things. So when that file is first started very, very early in our lives, usually with primary caregivers and the immediate kind of situations around us, um, we keep adding to that file and we keep adding, adding, adding. And then all of a sudden we're like 45 and wondering why things are going on. And then you're like, oh, look how big this file is. <laughs> Let's empty some of that out. That's really what that, that process looks like, especially from an EMDR standpoint, um, it, you know, literally emptying it out of the nervous system, the brain, recategorizing things, rewiring things, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I even hesitate for us to even call this childhood trauma today, but I would say what we often like scan for is adverse childhood um, effects, adverse childhood experiences. So, you know, what, what was the birth order that you grew up in? Did you grow up in a little bit of poverty? Was there a period of time where, you know, maybe the primary caregiver in the house um, was ill? Uh, maybe dad, you know, like I think about when the mine went on strike and how stressful that was for families back in the 90s, because usually they were a one income family back then when I was growing up. Um, things like that, right? So, uh, you know, did you have an, a parent who struggled with substances? It's not always about were you sexually abused? You know, what were these horrific trauma incidents that happened? A lot of it can be, you know, um, I even think back to like my early kindergarten years, I was deathly shy. And what was really traumatic for me was going to kindergarten. I very, very significantly remember that time separation anxiety um, and, and what that looked like at that time in my life and then where that played out in other areas as well friendships, bullying, all of those things, like all those things applied to me in my early childhood years, right? Would I have called it childhood trauma? No, I talked about like really shitty years in school when stuff was going on, right? But now when we go back and look at that and I see what I help people process through, I'm like, yeah, those are all traumatic events. We talked about this in the previous episode. They're negative and unexpected, confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. Typically in childhood, I'm going to say the trauma happens over a period of time. So it's not a significant event, a, a single time event, like a car accident and things like that. Typically it's the prolonged. So it's relational, right? It's scenarios, situations that were, that went on for longer periods of time. And as children, we are too little, not loud enough, not big enough to stand up for ourselves, too afraid. We want to please our parents, those around us. It makes our environment more peaceful when they're peaceful. There's a lot of like trying to regulate others around us so that we can remain regulated kind of thing. If, if, if our adults can't do that for us. So that's what trauma kind of really looks like from a childhood perspective. 
and I'm really covering this vaguely because I just really want people to start looking at it and going like, oh, so the fact that my sister was this big drama queen and took all my parents' attention and that made me not speak up about my needs. Are you saying that that's kind of trauma? Yeah, it is because it definitely impacts how you relate with other adults, your intimate relationships, maybe at work because you don't want to speak up. You don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to inconvenience other people. You learned that when you behave nicely, you kind of slid under the radar because somebody else took the stage on some of those things. That's a perfect example. I help a ton of people work through those ones, you know? So just kind of looking at it so that you guys can all think about like, oh, what areas in my childhood would have been impacted by some of these things? You know, Jason and I, we were, we were talking about this because we live um, actually in, in Camus, we both live in Brocklehurst. Um, and in all of the same year, uh, our, our elementary school burned down. Our kids watched their elementary school burn down. And a few short months later, a like military plane crashed in our neighborhood into somebody's house. They watched that happen. Everybody was off that day. They saw it happen. <laughs> and um, COVID hit that same year. And since then, it's still somewhat impacting all of us. And two and a half years later, all of our kids have these jacked up nervous systems. We also have had forest fires throughout the last couple of years, some very substantially close to our city. All of the helicopters, we also live by the airport. Our children are hearing aircrafts all the time. I've helped a ton of people work through the trauma of that plane crash because there's so many helicopters and planes flying over our houses daily during fire season, right? Tons of them, like it's nonstop, especially like last summer when the, we were surrounded by these fires, yeah. you know, and the ashes falling from the sky and anytime they could fly, they would fly. And it would just be for, you just hear vroom, for like hours and hours. Yeah, I remember one night my son was lying in bed and he said, mom, I would be able to fall asleep if all these helicopters weren't flying back home, like because they all come in like nine o'clock at night ish kind of thing. And it was constant, constant. So really looking at that, we were talking about how this is going to become, you know, if we still had textbooks in school, you know, 30 years from now, they would be talking about this pandemic, we would be talking about what all of this is. And are we helping them regulate their nervous systems right now? Well, I don't know. Most of the adults trying to do that aren't even regulated. So we're trying to <laughs> But for the most part, this is probably going to play out later on, right? So maybe we learn like 20 years from now when sickness starts to impact some of these children, there's this hyper alert response, you know, with hand sanitizer and masks and all of this. Maybe it brings back a whole bunch of that fear of like, oh my gosh, I remember when we were on lockdown, we couldn't see our family. We couldn't see our friends. We weren't in school, you know, like we don't really know how that's going to play out. Uh, on my social media page, I talked a lot about last year how to give your nervous system a break because we were covered in smoke all the time. Uh, we couldn't breathe properly. We were constantly triggered by the smell of smoke, the sight of smoke. You know, there was always this like yellowy haze in our windows. Um, and I said, uh, like that is essentially leaving us in this like fight or flight response all the time. We weren't ever getting a break. We were in like orange red zone all the time. And if there was some way that you could get yourself into the green zone. So play, somehow play. So for me, I would, I was lucky enough. I could take my kids up to the lake for periods of time and cannonballing off the dock was like giving us two hours of nervous system calming and freedom and play to actually sort that out. So for a lot of kids, it is around play 
and all of the sensory related stuff that we stop doing as adults. So the coloring books, the dancing, the Play-Doh, the playing in the dirt, the running around and kicking balls. That is so helpful for kids to regulate and process their traumas. That's why as adults, if we can get down and play with them, that's what we want to help them work through. So we really don't know what the effects of all of this are going to be, but we do know that like right now our children are very impacted. And I think in our generation growing up, Jason, there were other things that impacted us, right? Our parents were emotionally unavailable. Almost everyone in our generation deals with like emotionally unavailable parents, dads, people who weren't necessarily there to regulate. We were asked to play very differently than kids play with their parents now. It was like, go outside. There was a lot of separation. There was a lot of wonderful independence, but there was also a lot of lack of co-regulation. Um, where we didn't really learn that from our adults. You know what I mean? I do. And here's an interesting thing, because I had um, my adoptive mother. She grew up, like she lost her dad when she was three. So she was raised by a woman, a hard woman on a farm in like Saskatchewan yeah, during mother- the depression. Yeah. Right. And so growing up, like she was, she tried her best. Obviously she couldn't have kids of her own, so she never dealt with that. But it was very much like you a feeling of you had to earn that love and prove yourself. Plus, even though my adoptive father was very successful, they went broke right around when I was born, but he, he bounced back because he's just really resourceful. He was quite successful and quite a bit of money. Like there was always a, like, you can't spend this. You don't do that. If you, you can't go have too much fun that you spend money on. If you buy a book, you got to make it. You don't read it quick. You got to read it make it draw it out as long as you can to get the most bang for your buck out of it and it's funny even though like she's dead and i i realize all this is because of what she grew up with imprinted on me i still sometimes do that yeah i spent yeah. 20 bucks on a book i'm gonna read this it's gonna take me a month to read this book you know it's like it's like fuck that i'm gonna read it in a weekend i'm gonna go buy another one because we're okay you know what i mean but it, it sticks in your brain so i'm curious what we're gonna put on our kids and their adults and how that's gonna work Yes. And I love that you gave that example because I go back and look, you know, my, both, both my parents, it's funny. My mom's side came from Saskatchewan farm kind of stuff. So my grandma had like six kids working on this farm. And actually I realized that when I had twins, I realized my grandma had twins, but one died at birth. So I don't think she ever saw that baby back then. So look at what grief and trauma looks like for them back then. Right. So she had like, I I think five, she had like six kids or something. My grandpa was away at war. So she was like running this farm. And that's when like, there was no washing machines. You were the washing machine. I'm like, oh my God, she was incredible. Right. But that would be miserable. And I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if she was full of resentments for for a long time. Right. I've done my work. Somebody fucking cater to me. Right. So then, um, you know, I've, I've always looked at that in terms of like when my, when my grandpa came home from war, my mom was the youngest. And my mom always said like, no, I had it good because he was home when I was, uh, through most of my childhood, it was all of her older siblings where he was gone. And I said, yeah, but mom, I don't think you got the good version of him you got the shell-shocked version of him, the PTSD version of him. So everyone else was kind of like saved by that version of him. And I think you might've gotten the worst of it. So yes, he was home, but you got a very damaged version of him that had been away at war, right? It was really interesting when we start really appreciating what the intergenerational effects of even our like veteran ancestors are, because we talk about that with our indigenous populations, but it does apply to other scenarios as well, especially with our military families. And then I look at my dad's family and it was the same thing. My grandma and my grandpa on that side, both were in the war. It's a really cute story. My grandma used to like weld the wings on the planes and my grandpa flew them. Oh, but sweet. He, 
Yeah, super sweet. Hey, um, I have a fascination with all things war. My dad did as well because I think he felt connected to them because his his biological dad died when he was really young. So my grandma remarried because you couldn't be a single mom back then. Um, and I think was in a very not good relationship with that man for the rest of her life. But you, I mean, it's a survival thing at that point, right? Um, but when we look at all of those things and exactly how that like filters into, you know, how we live that lack kind of mentality around, we don't know when we're going to go broke. We don't know when the whole economy is going to crash. And let's talk about what that was like now for that generation to live through COVID and watch toilet paper and gas prices and all of these things. And they're like, yeah, you could be left with nothing but potatoes guys. Yeah, and <laughs> it's don't <real>. panic. <laughs> They're reliving all of that again, like from their nursing home, feeling like incredibly helpless, probably. Right. Yeah. yeah fascinating. It, it is. It is fascinating. Um, and I, I, it, it gives me pause, too, because like if my one, one of my big experiences, obviously, I was adopted, but I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But even that as a child had an impact because you my the research I've done, you know, something's wrong inside of you. You're, you're, you're automatically given this kind of this depression, this anxiety, this fear of, of um, being abandoned. It's all this subconsciously imprinted on you, but you don't know that. And then looking growing up, how just like, you know, like, we, like I talked about the dyslexia and the bouncing schools a lot, how that would just take those subconscious traumas I didn't even know about and just make them so much worse. Yeah, they're files, right? They were files, yeah. and it was like secretly filing them in there and you didn't even realize they were being filed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then not even being told about it, you know, until much later in life and just going like, whoa. And that's that, I think, I'm sure that's something I'm still figuring out <laughs> how, that, how I feel about that. Just, you know, it's almost like dishonesty, you know, like in a way. For sure, right? Betrayal, violation of all of those things, right? And then like abuse of our trust, how we just have this like, I think as children, like we have this beautiful way of just trusting without fear and just like living with these open hearts. And it's not until negative things happen that we start to armor up, right? So I think- you know, what also fascinates me is that people, and that's why I love this work. I love learning about people and their stories and their lives because people fascinate me because even though we go through life navigating all of these things, we're so fucking resilient. And it's like, what is the difference between that person who ends up the street addicted on the streets addicted and this one? Like we are all one bad decision away from being in that position. So what is it? You know, I look back at people I partied with in high school and some are not doing well. And I'm like, what was the difference between the two of us? You know, like, so I'm always fascinated between like what makes people more resilient or how people are able to continually cope with these kind of blows against them. And I think that this brings us back to this like state of balance, the state of equilibrium. When I'm hot, my body's going to try and regulate and cool. We do this from a biological level, but I think we also innately do this from a what do I need right now to regulate level, right? And we are able to numb ourselves out. We are able to disconnect. Some people can disconnect and dissociate from their traumas so effectively so that they can just lead a regular I'm, I'm using my bunny ears here, regular quote unquote life, right? Um, and it's fascinating once they 
finally decide that they're at a place of maybe stability in their life as we get older, right? Like, I think there's a time and a place for all of it. Then they start to unpack all of this and you're like, oh my gosh, the fragile foundation that this Jenga tower is built on is so prestige and so thoughtful and intentional. Like, I am not tearing this down with you. We are going to take one block out at a time because you have built this and your life around these traumas so strategically just to survive. And you've done really well but it doesn't have to be this hard and it doesn't have to be this fragile. Does that make sense? It does. I had a, a grandfather who fought in the second world war. I mean, he landed on Juneau beach and fought his way into Germany. Right. And then in his civilian life, he was a firefighter. Wow. And he was the most humorous, hmm. easygoing, well-adjusted person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, and I remember he'd tell us war stories, right. And, and how he kind of got by. And I remember asking him, well, how did you, deal with all that and you know and he just he just sort of said like i got out of it i'm scratch. he never got, took a shot he never got a scratch on him wow. uh, and he just saw himself as lucky and he was just going to enjoy life as best he could that was you know what i mean and he, he didn't watch like watching action movies or he liked comedy so he stuck with comedy but i remember going to see saving private ryan with him when it first came out and we sat in the theater and we were watching and of course at beginning 20 minutes 20 30 minutes is with the recreation of d-day and about halfway, like I'm watching it and I'm almost feeling traumatized watching it. Like, you know, cause it's just it, Spielberg does such a good job, but halfway through that, he leaned over to me and he just, and he went, that's exactly what it was like. Yeah, it is. It was, you know what I mean? But for him to sit and watch that and not break down, like, I don't know how he did it, how he could just, oh, well, he did it more. inside you and he wanted you to watch the movie, but like inside, I think he probably just completely shut it down. And yeah. I wonder if there's a bit of that, like alter ego kind of effect where you just create this character of who you were back then and you completely detach from it and you leave it as this character, almost like you were a superhero. You were Captain America, right? That was yeah. that job. That was that costume. And I'm completely disconnected. And now I'm just, you know, wearing my shorts and tennis shoes in the movie theater or something, right? He must have, because I mean, he was a young man of 17, 18 when he was in the war, right? So wow. he must have just somehow just, yeah, taken that part of himself and just turned it off. Yeah, because that's not, not the common story. You know, I work with a, a veteran who's been pretty public about his story on my social media page. And, um, you know, the work that we have done together has been so transformative at this later years of his life. But the flashbacks and, you know, like almost daily impacts of what would come back for him night sweats terrors all that kind of stuff was so so intrusive yet still woke up this again that fascination piece still woke up every day um you know going to work having a normal job but you know even before we look at those traumas like i talk about my dad's death as being a catalyst in my life but there's plenty of things when i actually go in and tidy up my earlier, like my experience of life to be a greater, better version of myself now. Um, so much of that happened way before that, right? There was bullying, there was rejection stuff. There was me being really shy. You know, there was um, lots of times of feeling powerless, negative, unexpected events where you feel confused, powerless, overwhelmed, all these kinds of things, you know? I even think about a time where like my mom and dad, sorry if this isn't, um, yeah, sorry, mom. <laughs> Um, but like they had an argument, they got in a fight. My dad like took the truck and camper somewhere. And that was like, oh my God. So of course, as a child, you're like worst case scenarioing everything, right? Because again, my mom's not going to really tell us the details of things. But in that moment, I was like, I think he was gone for like five days or something, right? And um, in that moment, I'm like, 
worst case scenario mean? Because this is what kids do. And this is why when we can support kids, the more information you give them, the more factual, tangible information you give them, the less they have to make up in their mind because they will, they will fill in the blanks. I promise you that. So be honest with your kids. Let them know things. I talk about this in childhood grief all the time. We'll do an episode on that because I, I, I've done a lot of stuff around childhood grief and whatnot but you know don't leave room for them to fill in the blanks because they will come up with amazing things right but I remember oh, yeah. and I had made which really goes back to some of my like people pleasing and you know like please like you know trying to alleviate others discomfort and stuff I go back and see where that early patterning came in self-abandonment almost right um is I was like if mom and dad are going to divorce I have to go live with dad because he can't take care of himself Cause he didn't do the cooking in the house. He didn't do any of that. He was the breadwinner. Right. And he, he fixed everything, but like my mom ran the household. So I think at like seven years old, I knew my mom would take better care of me, but I sacrificed that and made a decision in my head that if mom and dad split up, I would go live with dad. I don't think I ever even told my mom this. Maybe she'll be listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, this is the martyr wound in me, right? That again, you can see followed me through life until I've healed it now. But um, yeah, he can't take care of himself. So I will go do that, even though I would suffer through that, right? Like fascinating that a seven-year-old would come to that in their head, right? We do, and we forget that. Like I know with Griffin, he just comes up with these, like you say, that he can come up with these, any yeah. worst case scenario, but he can fix a problem in his mind. I remember one, it was almost just like when I was dealing with, when, my adoptive mom was passing away and I like, I was walking home. It was the day that she was going to die. Like we knew it, it was happening that day. Yeah. And he just, his logic, like he kind of, we're walking along and we're walking home from school and usually his mom would pick him up, but I picked him up because she was up going to see my mom. And I kind of said to him, like, he's like, why do you pick me up dad? I said, well, mom's up at the hospital right now. And I was up there earlier and it looks like Nana's not going to make it. Like this is it the day she's going to pass away. And I said, how do you feel like about that? He kind of watched, like I said, she was a hard woman and she had mm -hmm. her issues. I said, how do you feel about that? And he goes, well, he goes, dad, when the dog dies, I'm going to be really sad. And he goes, but Nana wasn't really a nice person. So I think that's okay. <laughs> nailed, like, and he nailed it on that. Whereas a person, I couldn't say that, even though I kind of in a way mentally was like, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, you were socialized that. And you know what the coolest thing there, Jason, is, is like how you would have responded to that. Because if he didn't feel safe to say that or felt like it would have been wrong, he wouldn't have said it. But what he said was actually very true to him, right? Mm -hmm. and just space and acceptance for that is so key because most parents' reactions would be like, you can't say that about Nana, right? But just letting that be and like, that's a wise observation, buddy. You know? Yeah, that's, and that's what I said. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And when we look at like, when we looked at like the piling up of the childhood trauma and some things like that, like, especially for our kids, like locally and, and all of the things that added up through that whole two and a half year span, uh, my ex and I were going through a separation. So we were still living together, but very strategically starting to separate things. And the kids were aware of that, but it happened so slowly that there was no significant event that was just like, oh my gosh, our family split up. It was a very gradual process. And even then it's been mostly amicable from both of our parts. Um, so it, there wasn't ever this like significant event that they could just lose their shit over. It wasn't until about like two years in kind of thing that um, our family cat died and my kids 
their response to that was more than just the cat dying. Um, and I realized that that was like the Trojan horse to everything they had been carrying because there was finally a tangible event where they could lose their mind. And they still talk about Tapper's death. And she was my cat of like 17 years. They didn't even really pay much attention to her, to be honest, but it was a very tangible event finally, because even in our separation, there wasn't a tangible event that was like on this day it happened. I remember it, you know, like even moving, you know, Chad into his house, I would take the kids over there and I'd set up their rooms and I'd take them over to there to play when he wasn't around. And we just like established two homes, right? Then there was always this kind of fluid overlap. So that, you know, looking at for kids, where are they making sense of things? Where are they storing it up until that big event? Kind of like the vicarious trauma thing we talked about, you know, all of it builds up. And then all of a sudden there was like the one tangible event in your life that just like exploded at all. Same thing for the kids. And, and so much of that through COVID and all of the anxieties and witnessing us going through these things and trying to be like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Right. Well, they, they smell bullshit a mile away. Like, they are so energetically connected to us and they're so attuned because here's the thing with kids, they have to observe their, their um, parental units and their environment around them because they are always scouring. What do I need to do to make this more comfortable? If I act this way, mom's not going to lose her shit. If we do this after dad gets home from work, he's not going to get angry. So they're always regulating around others. This is why we look to control scenarios around us to keep ourselves more settled inside because as kids, we always have to do that. And that's why we're so adaptive and, you know, um, uh, resilient in some of those ways, because we're constantly adapting to our environments as kids. So they are always looking at our mood state, our emotional state. My kids, I have a way more fluid expression of things since I have not numbed out at my government job, right? Like I really softened up, but also since my home environment became much safer for me to truly just be me. So I cry when I want to cry now and I dance when I want to dance and I just freely let all of the emotions come through. And there will be times I don't even realize I'm crying and I'm like cooking dinner and listening to music or something. And my kids will be like, mom, are those happy tears or sad tears? And I'm like, oh, let me check. <laughs> I'm actually not sure. I'm like, these are like kind of grateful tears. I'm thinking about good things in the future that I want to come. And I think I just got really happy, tearful about that. Um, Cause often like this stuff will happen, but it's really interesting that they want to clarify and double check because they don't know what to prepare for. Are they yeah. prepared for, you know, mom being sad? Are they prepared for something good? They are literally looking to prepare themselves. So that's kind of the other piece with Griffin there and all of that is like, how's dad going to respond to this? Is this a safe place? You know, any of those things. Interesting stuff. And I think maybe we'll leave childhood trauma for now. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll come back to it a thousand times. We've got so much we'll stuff here. A lot. Yeah, we'll reference it a lot through here. But we're just sort of setting the groundwork for everything that's to come as we go along here. So this is kind of, we're touching on, yes, some topics, but we're going to revisit them down the road because they all intertwine. They do. They're all pieces of the puzzle that make this beautiful mosaic of our life. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I like that. That was a very <laughs> poetic, flowery way to sum that up. Um, we're back next week. We haven't decided what we're talking about yet next week, but we have something pretty cool for you. Until then, I'm Jason. I'm Jolene. And we'll be back again.